Welcome to Bee's Estrogen Empire. The Estrogen Empire is a brand new series focused on breaking down various topics in women's health. It's time for us to create an empire of women who are informed and assertive and can advocate for their health and the health of women around the world. I'm Bee, the host of Bee's Estrogen Empire, and I'm very privileged to have a voice and feel confident enough to discuss these topics. I would like to take a moment to recognize that not all women have female anatomy, and not all female anatomy classifies someone as a woman. The Empire will use evidence-based information to guide topics and discussions. All references will be included in the show notes, and I'm so excited that you're here to join the Estrogen Empire and the movement that we are about to create. Welcome along. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crazy Beautiful Life podcast. I'm Bee, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited that you're here for the first ever episode of my brand new series, Bee's Estrogen Empire. I know we've been talking about this for a wee while, and if you know me in my personal life, then you know that this is something that I've been working towards for quite a long time, and I'm so excited that it's finally here, and it's finally going up, and that we get to you know, share these experiences and these really important important conversations together. So if you ever see an episode that has in the title Bee's Estrogen Empire, if you guys pay attention, that spells out B-E-E, see what I did there? (laughs) You'll know that it's automatically focused on uh, women's health and different feminine experiences, women experiences, advocacy, things like that. So I hope you guys are looking forward to more episodes of Bee's Estrogen Empire. I know I am. And yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm just really, really excited to sort of do this. So today, if this is your first time ever listening or joining the podcast and you know nothing about me, um, hey, I'm Bethany, but most people call me B, and I'm currently finishing my Bachelor's of Kinesiology at University of Toronto. I played varsity rugby for the last five years, and I'm a very outdoorsy gal. I love hiking, sailing, snowboarding, and much more. I have a huge interest in various topics in women's health, such as pregnancy, postpartum, and endometriosis, feminine cancers. I just love learning about the the human body and particularly um, a woman's body because I feel like there's so much going on there and there's so much that we don't know and I'm really dedicated to raising awareness about that kind of stuff. Um, I want to devote my career my career to pelvic floor physiotherapy if I get into my master's. Still pending with that one, you guys, if you're wondering about an update. Um, but yeah, that's a wee bit about me. Today we are actually going to be talking about sexual dysfunction and a condition known as vaginismus. So today's agenda is going to cover number one, what is vaginismus and what are its implications? Number two, how does vaginismus start or how does it occur? Number three, how is vaginismus treated? And number four, what can we do about vaginismus as the estrogen empire? So I'm super excited for today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback about today's episode, then please let me know in the Crazy Beautiful Life Facebook group. As you guys know, there is a Facebook group. If you just search Crazy Beautiful Life, you will have to answer a few questions in order to join the group just so I can make sure that you are someone who's actually interested in the podcast and listens to the podcast. I don't just want like a bunch of random people in the Facebook group. Um, So if you do want to talk more about vaginismus, then please head on over to the Facebook group and we can chat about it there. So 
let's just get right into it. I'm super excited. Topic one on the agenda, what is vaginissimus? I'm not sure if you've ever heard this term before or if you've maybe heard it and sort of brushed it off. Um, I feel like vaginismus isn't really talked about for a number of conditions that we will get into in the later half of the episode, but if you've never heard of vaginismus, vaginismus is defined as a sexual dysfunction disorder that involves involuntary spasms of the muscles of the pelvic floor. So basically the muscles in the pelvic floor spasm without your conscious awareness and you have no control over when they spasm and when they don't and they contract and it can cause a lot of discomfort. So basically the muscles in the pelvic floor can become hypertonic and contract persistently to cause vaginal stenosis. Vaginal stenosis basically means a narrowing of the vagina. Now, although I want to use a lot of medical terminology and jargon throughout the podcast, and I likely will, I am going to try to explain what these things mean so that you guys can all understand what I'm talking about. Because I don't want you guys to listen to this episode and just think we had no idea what you were talking about the entire time there. Um, So I am going to try and explain what these things mean. So stenosis basically means narrowing. You can have stenotic arteries, stenotic vagina. It's just when the circumference or the opening that was once wider becomes smaller. So vaginismus and vaginal stenosis can be used interchangeably, but vaginismus is an actual condition with other associated implications. It's not just an objective measure. Like vaginismus, sorry, vaginal stenosis is an objective observation, whereas vaginismus is a subjective condition. Vaginismus is actually a spectrum disorder, with some cases resulting in only mild stenosis of the vagina and others resulting in complete closure or blockage of the vagina, where it becomes completely blocked off and penetration is completely unattainable. So what does that mean? Like I said, the vagina becomes very, very narrow, which can make sexual intercourse or penetration extremely difficult, painful, or in some cases penetration is completely impossible. This also means that some women can't use tampons, menstrual cups, or go for various examinations such as a pap smear. smear. Um, And the pain associated with vaginismus is also along a spectrum with some women reporting mild pain and to others reporting very, very severe and debilitating pain. Something really interesting about the pain associated with vaginismus is that it can be very context specific. Some women only experience pain during sex and they have no problem with insertion of a finger, insertion of a tampon, or using a menstrual cup. Now typically these things might be a little bit smaller in size um, than other things that you may be using for penetration, whether that be a dildo or a penis or something like that. Um, But even still, some people's vaginismus is really dependent in that they only have pain during sexual intercourse and they don't have pain when using menstrual cups, tampons, and things like that. So this kind of vaginismus is known as situational vaginismus. It totally depends on the situation for the vaginismus and involuntary muscle contraction to occur. 
There's another form of vaginismus called spasmodic vaginismus, which basically means that the the vaginal muscles spasm uncontrollably regardless of the situation. So people with spasmodic vaginismus can't use tampons, can't have fingers inserted, can't have different things like dildos or vibrators inserted, they can't have sexual intercourse. Basically, nothing is going in the vagina, or if it is going in the vagina, they experience mild, moderate to severe pain. It's been reported that vaginismus affects 2 to 4% of people with a vagina, and it's actually not a new condition. It's actually been around for a very, very long time and was first reported in 1861 by Sims and their colleagues. Even though it was first reported in 1861, There is little to no teaching done in med school, physio school, and sexual education, which I find completely mind-bottling. Like, this condition has been around for such a long time. It has affected so many people with vaginas, yet we have almost no understanding of it to date, and we're also not teaching people about it in our med schools and other healthcare professional jobs crazy, right? Like, I I just can't believe it. And I'll get into why I think there is a lack of understanding regarding the condition and why I think that there is a lack of awareness about the condition towards the end of the episode. When I was looking through the research regarding vaginismus, I found it really hard to find the implications associated with the condition. And I found it really easy to find multiple, multiple, multiple research papers about the classification of the illness. Does it belong in the DSM-5 or not? Is it a psychological condition or is it a structural condition? Is it a physical condition? I found various classification systems as to how to determine whether someone's vaginismus is psychological or physical. I found tons of reviews about whether or not it is just a subjective experience or if it can be objectively measured. It was crazy the amount of just noise that I found when I was researching this condition and I found it really, really hard to find the implications of having the condition such as the lived experience and because I couldn't find anything in the research I actually went and listened to a bunch of different podcasts that were stories told by people with vaginismus and I watched a lot of YouTube videos about other women who were speaking out about having the condition and not being able to find good research about it not being able to be taken seriously about it and just overall about the lived experience. So finding the implications associated with vaginismus was a very convoluted, troublesome thing where I couldn't actually find research-based support for the implications, but I was able to come up with a few via podcast and YouTube that I'm going to tell you right now. So lots of women report Um, interruptions in their relationships causing sexual dissatisfaction and ultimately resulting in divorce separation and breaking up however um, this sort of sexual dissatisfaction and relationship struggles have mainly been reported in um, 
heterosexual relationships and hasn't really been reported in same-sex relationships that much to my knowledge. Um, like I said, it's very hard to find this in the, in the research, but it makes sense. Sex is such a huge part of a relationship with someone. Sexual intercourse is really important for, you know, sharing a bond. Um, sexual experience is really important just for physical and psychological satisfaction in a relationship. So when you have a condition such as this, that sort of interferes with your ability to share that really intimate experience with someone, it sort of makes sense why it would have such negative implications on relationships. It can also make the other partner without um, the vaginismus feel unwanted, feel unloved, feel like they, they can't satisfy you. It can cause a lot of times um, your partner won't want to hurt you, so they won't want to have sex with you. So there's a lot of things that happen um, during a relationship that vaginismus can sort of interrupt and affect, if you will. Some women have reported um, severe depression about the condition and just feeling horrible about their bodies. And that's sort of when we get into these existential questions like, what does it mean to be a female? And what does it mean to be a woman? And some women have said that they sort of have this existential crisis, whereas, you know, I am a woman and as a woman, you are supposed to be able to accept a penis or you are supposed to be able to be penetrated. And if I can't be penetrated, then what am I as a woman and what is my role in society? Others have reported that the pain is so severe that they have lack of sexual desire altogether, sexual withdrawal, they are not interested in sex, they are not interested in anything to do with the topic, and that's something that can be sort of negatively implicated with the condition. Another thing that's really important to know is that vaginal stenosis or vaginismus can cause a lot of difficulties during pregnancy, especially if someone is determined or wants to give birth vaginally. Now, although we would like most women to being to be giving birth vaginally. There is absolutely no shame with needing a C-section. There is nothing wrong with having to have a C-section. There's nothing wrong with choosing to have a C-section. There's nothing wrong with vaginal birth. It really comes down to whatever works for you, whatever works for your partner, whatever works for your health and the health of your baby. However, um, if someone does have vaginismus or vaginal stenosis, it is very likely that they will have to have a C-section um, just because the vaginal canal becomes so narrow that it can be very dangerous for a child to pass through that canal to enter the world. So a lot of the times, um, cesarean is recommended. Now we're going to talk about how vaginismus starts. There's some research to show that vaginismus is more common in competitive athletes and high-performance athletes than their controls. However, there's not currently enough research to justify or explain why we see this relationship. For example, if you go on PubMed right now and type in vaginismus and athletes, not a single result comes up. If you type in like brackets, how you do on PubMed, brackets, vaginismus, unbracket, and brackets, athletes, Nothing, zero, like not a single study comes up about this. However, when I change the search from vaginismus and replace the word vaginismus, vaginismus with, um, I, can't, I have a hard time saying this word, dyspar, dysparunia, uh, which is just a synonym for painful sex. It's just a fancy word for painful sex. Um, when I replace vaginism, vaginismus with dyspareunia and athletes, 
I I found um, four studies in total, and one of them was a cross-sectional study on female athletes in Brazil with various pelvic floor dysfunctions. So this cross-sectional study that I found in Brazil uh, reported that athletes may experience painful sex due to chronic tension and endopelvic fascia from excessive load causing hypertonic muscles and narrowing of the vaginal canal. I know that was a lot of words, um, but basically with high-performance athletes, we are often told to engage our core, use our core, tighten, constrict, contract. Um, We are using things like the Valsalva maneuver, and we're lifting heavy weights, and there's a lot of tightening and Just chronic, chronic stress that is put on the pelvic floor when you are a high-performance athlete. And chronic stress and chronic tension can possibly lead to narrowing of the vaginal canal. Now, this isn't currently um, shown or supported in the research. This is just a hypothesis. Another possible hypothesis as to why we see high-performance and competitive athletes experiencing more prevalent or higher rates of vaginismus is that high-performance athletes often have a fear of becoming pregnant um, and that interrupting their athletic performance. So it's hypothesized that that fear of not wanting to become pregnant can cause vaginismus and cause that involuntary spasm of the pelvic floor uh, during intercourse. Another possible hypothesis is that our entire upper body sits, all comes together and literally sits in our pelvis. So our pelvis is supporting a lot of weight and a lot of things going on. And when you're an athlete who's, you know, using your upper body a lot, you might have increased musculature in the upper body as compared to controls. You might have heavier body up top, um, then the pelvic floor has to support this. It all sort of comes out, comes down into this bowl um, in the pelvis where our entire upper body sits. And if you do have increased musculature or increased output of the upper body and it's sitting in this pelvic floor, then maybe that is putting more stress and more tension in the pelvic floor, which can cause to which can cause hypertonic muscles or vaginal narrowing. Another risk factor for developing vaginismus, which is one that is most commonly supported in the research, is sexual abuse and or rape. So studies have reported that women who have experienced sexual abuse are significantly more likely to experience vaginismus compared to their control groups. When you think about it, this makes a lot of sense. If you have had a negative sexual interaction, if you have been sexually abused, um, then it's much more likely that your body is going to have a sort of protective, involuntary protective response to going into that situation again. So say you have been sexually abused and you go to have voluntary sex with someone, your body subconsciously may fear sex or may fear intercourse due to the trauma that it has associated it with and it may cause um, constriction and involuntary spasm of the pelvic floor causing vaginal stenosis and vaginismus. So it really makes a lot of sense how trauma um, and severe trauma or mild trauma um, can influence or cause vaginismus long term. And also, if these traumas go unaddressed, if these traumas are suppressed, it's also more likely that they will show up later on and cause different issues uh, with the pelvic floor down the road. 
lastly, the research shows and a lot of things that I have watched on YouTube and podcasts that I have listened to about people's experience with vaginismus um, is that an upbringing, like a childhood upbringing that focuses on religion, uh, very religious beliefs where sex is a sin, sex before marriage is something that is shameful, sex is extremely negative, sex is extremely private, sex should only be shared with one person. Um, A lot of research, and I shouldn't say a lot of research because there isn't a lot of research, Uh, some of the research most consistently and also um, with the things that I looked at on YouTube. YouTube and the podcast that I listen to have showed that these religious upbringings can lead to vaginismus because women are taught that sex is something that is shameful, sex before marriage is a sin, and that can cause an involuntary response or a subconscious response of the body to constrict in such, such situations leading to vaginismus. Regardless of the cause, vaginismus is a very real condition that a lot of women both trans and cisgender um, and a lot of people with vaginas deal with and suffering from such condition can be extremely troublesome and place a lot of stressors on multiple aspects such as relationship body image and a lot of different psychological things like anxiety and depression painful sex is something that shouldn't really be deemed as normal and I think addressing this condition and advocating for better resources and better education for women is something that's really important and I think a lot of the time um, different feminine health issues are discounted as normal and you know sex is is a big one where painful sex is just something that we are taught is normal Um, But I think that it's really important that we understand that it's not normal, it doesn't have to be this way, and that sex can be something that is pain-free. Sex can actually be pleasurable, what a concept, (laughs) and sex can be something that uh, women or people with a vagina can enjoy. So let's talk about treatment. There are various treatments associated with vaginismus, such as pelvic floor physiotherapy, cognitive-based therapy, mindfulness, vaginal dilators, and so much more. There's tons of online forums that claim to be treatment of vaginismus and different like workshops and activities that you can do to sort of address your vaginismus. So the one that is mainly supported is going to be pelvic floor physiotherapy. Pelvic floor physiotherapy is basically you go to see a physiotherapist, you take everything off from the waist down, and they use manual techniques to mobilize, stretch, and release different muscles within the pelvic floor. It can be a very intimate experience because you do have to allow the primary healthcare professional to insert in your vagina, um, use different techniques in and around the vagina to release some of the tensions that are going on. They have to sort of do an assessment as to what is going on, where is the pain, what different muscles are involved, and then sort of come up with a treatment plan as to how you and the pelvic floor physiotherapist can address the issue together. The issue with pelvic floor physiotherapy is that although it can be extremely effective in the prognosis and treatment of vaginismus, it can also be very expensive. This is a specialty of of physiotherapy. It's not just your basic orthopedic or musculoskeletal physiotherapy. It is a specialty of physiotherapy that requires additional treatment. And because of that, it tends to be a wee bit more expensive. 
So if you are someone who is of lower socioeconomic status or if you are someone who doesn't have extended health coverage, then you may not have access to this treatment modality, which I think is really unfortunate and I'm not really sure how we can address this issue because we can't just tell people to you know, make pelvic floor physiotherapy affordable because the physiotherapists who perform these tasks have gone to school for, you know, minimum of six years in Canada and then have also taken additional courses and spent additional money to be able to perform these mobilization techniques and assessments for vaginismus and various other pelvic floor ailments. So we can't really just tell physicians to make their treatments cheaper. So, so what do we do? What do we who do we talk to? Who do we go to to make um, treatment, pelvic floor physiotherapy treatment, more accessible and more affordable to women of all socioeconomic statuses so that pleasurable sex isn't just something that's enjoyed by those who can afford pelvic floor physiotherapy and pelvic sex is pelvic sex. <laughs> um, pleasurable sex is something that can be enjoyed by all. So that's something that I'm not really sure how we as an empire can address. If you have any issues, I would love to know. Let me know in the Facebook group. Cognitive-based therapy is also something that can be used for the treatment of vaginismus. And this sort of addresses the other side. So this would be the psycho psycho what's it called psychological side of vaginismus so cognitive based therapy is usually performed by a psychotherapist or psychiatrist and they are sort of there to work through the traumas or the beliefs or subconscious thoughts that may be associated with causing the vaginismus so they're really focused on the mind and the mind's role in the dysfunction there are various cognitive based therapists um within the city of Toronto and the GTA that do focus on pelvic discomfort and pelvic pain and painful sex and things like that. But another thing that can be noticed, noted about cognitive-based therapy is it's also not included um, in our OHIP. It is extended health coverage and really is not that affordable to those with a lower socioeconomic status. So once again, we have a financial constraint that is imposing or preventing people from receiving cognitive-based therapy to deal with vaginismus. So our physical way of dealing with vaginismus with pelvic floor physiotherapy has financial constraints and our psychological way of dealing with vaginismus has financial constraints as well. So I'm not really sure how we can sort of address this and how we can make this sort of healthcare uh, more accessible to the general public regardless of if they have extended health coverage, regardless of their socioeconomic status. So this is something that we as an empire can start talking about. Vaginal dilators have hit the market fairly recently, and you can buy them with a click of a button on Amazon. Um, someone that I know who is a pelvic floor physiotherapist actually got a set of vaginal dilators just mailed to her to try out, um, but there isn't enough research right now to support the efficacy of the use of vaginal dilators um, for evidence-based practice. So if I if I go on PubMed and I search vaginal dilators, there are a few studies that come up, but it's just not enough right now to determine if vaginal dilators are effective in treating vaginismus. 
Another thing is if you do decide to, if you have vaginismus and you do decide to try vaginal dilators, I'm not sure if there would be any sort of risk of harm. I think that in my opinion, um, because this is my podcast and I do like to share my opinion, um, in my opinion, trying vaginal dilators likely won't cause that much harm. They're basically just a set of um, different in insert of objects that start from very very small and you put them inside of the vagina and then you sort of build yourself up to the bigger more wider ones with a hope of stretching out uh, the vaginal canal and stretching out the muscles of the vagina so that intercourse can be achievable so in my opinion I don't think that there would be much harm associated with using vaginal dilators but I definitely think that before we recommend the use of vaginal dilators and before we market them for treating vaginismus, we need to reflect on the literature and maybe do a wee bit of research and see if they are effective in treating the condition or if they're just a big marketing scheme for companies to make lots of money off of. The treatment that works for vaginismus is largely dependent on the type of vaginismus that one has. So, for example, if someone has situational vaginismus, structural intervention that focuses on loosening the muscles of the pelvic floor may not work because we haven't really addressed the psychological component component of the disorder. We may be able to alleviate some of the symptoms um, by doing those structural-based interventions like pelvic floor physiotherapy, but we're not actually looking at you know why those structural ailments or structural dysfunctions occurred in the first place. So that it can be where you know, we need to look at the mind, we need to look on what's going on in the mind and in the person's subconscious that can be causing um, these ailments. On the flip side of that, someone that has spasmodic vaginismus and only does cognitive-based or psychological therapy as treatment may not benefit either because their issue may solely be structural because of being an athlete or something like that. Um, So just focusing on the mind will not really address the structural issue and the structural dysfunction. But another big issue with this is that there's so little research on vaginismus that we actually don't know whether it is solely a structural condition or whether it is solely a psychological condition. I would propose that or I would hypothesize that it's some combination of both. And maybe when treating vaginismus, we should focus on treating the physical or structural components of it, as well as treating the psychological or traumatic things that may have occurred or subconscious thoughts or morals or beliefs. So we're sort of using that mind-body aspect, connecting both of them and using both of them to drive our treatment intervention. The next topic on the agenda is what can we do about vaginismus? What can we do? You know, if there's so little research on it, if people aren't having conversations about it, if there's so much guilt and so much shame associated with vaginismus, then what can we do about it? We get into these sort of 
constructs of morality a lot and you know if a woman cannot be penetrated what is a woman's role in society and that's where a lot of women get into these issues of who am I as a woman what is my role if I can't have sex am I really you know deemed as woman am I really deemed as important if I can't give birth vaginally you know vaginal everyone talks about how amazing vaginal birth is and if I can't give um, birth vaginally, then, you know, sort of my morals are at play. I truly believe that advocacy can go a long way in creating a snowball effect to induce change for women or people with vaginismus. As I mentioned, I've listened to a lot of stories regarding vaginismus on YouTube and a lot of different podcasts, and I'm just always so astonished to hear that women have lived with the condition for many, many, many years and either not spoken up about it due to guilt and shame, or they didn't even know that it was an issue in the first place, and they just sort of thought that having painful sex or having trouble inserting a tampon or any sort of penetration, having all of those painful, painful, painful experiences is just sort of part of being a woman and having a vagina. And that just blows my mind because we really don't talk that much about feminine issues um, because we are, you know, told about guilt and shame and acting like a lady and keeping things private and women don't really know because of that women don't really know what's normal and what's not and because women aren't talking about about sex that much and we're not talking about vaginas that much and and different vaginal dysfunctions or structural ailments regarding vaginas because we're supposed to be so hush hush and keep it quiet um women don't know what's normal women don't know that Painful sex is not normal. Women don't know that inserting a tampon shouldn't be painful. It's, it's, it's just crazy to me. Like, think back to elementary school when we first learn about sex. I remember when I first learned about sex, I went to a Catholic elementary school and I do not want to, you know, speak poorly about my elementary school because I loved it. I had the most amazing time in elementary school. I was surrounded by amazing staff, amazing teachers, amazing students. It was great. But I can very, very, very vividly remember when I learned about sexual education during elementary school. And I learned about how women have a hymen and everyone's hymen is completely obstructed, which is also not the case. Some women don't even have a hymen. Some women's hymen is um, striated and is not completely closed and some women's hymens are completely closed but when I was in an elementary school I learned that we have a hymen which is a small flap of skin and when you have sex for the first time you break that hymen you bust it open and you bleed and it's really really painful and it's just this painful painful experience the first time that you have sex and I know that even when people lose their virginity one of the first things that people ask is oh was it painful like was it as painful as everyone says that it is so we create this discourse of sex being extremely painful right from the get-go when we are teaching people about sex as as young as young children in high school I also remember learning about sex in my gym class it's a I think it's still part of Ontario curriculum I'm not sure um also not to sort of discount the information that my 
teacher in high school gave me because our gym teacher was an amazing and a strong and a powerful, powerful woman who I'm so thankful for. Um, But I remember in high school too, learning about sex and learning about, you know, how to put on a condom and how painful it's going to be. And you have to get the lubricated condoms. Otherwise, sex is going to be painful. And if it's not lubricated enough, sex is going to be painful, 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 painful. Like, oh my gosh, there's just this overwhelming amount of jargon and discourse about sex being such a painful thing. So it's no wonder that so many people think that sex is painful and that having painful sex is normal it's no wonder that women will have painful sex for like five years before realizing or coming to terms with the fact that like hmm maybe this isn't normal it's just put in our minds from such a young age and I think it's really troublesome something that's also put in our minds from a really really young age is that we need to hide things regarding feminine health you know we are taught to hide tampons in our backpacks and you know put them in a little pencil case so that when you open your backpack other people don't see the the tampons in your backpack or put them in your purse and make sure you bring your purse with you to the washroom and you know teachers I remember seeing teachers bring their purses with them to the washroom and just thinking like why are they doing that like if if they need to bring their purse to the washroom like why don't they just bring their tampons with them to the washroom or their pads or their reusable tampons or their reusable pads or their menstrual cup or whatever we're taught from a very young age that we need to hide these things I remember a friend of mine specifically teaching me how to hold a tampon in my hand so that no one could see it or slide a pad into my back pocket and sneak off to the washroom so that no one knew what was going on. I remember in elementary school, um, in my classroom, our cloakroom, which is like our, like our hooks where we kept like our backpacks and our coats and stuff was on the other side of this cabinet in the room. And I remember thinking in elementary school, like how embarrassing it would be to be like, put my hand up, hey, can I go to the washroom and then go back into the cloakroom to grab my tampons or pads and then go to the washroom because I thought, my God, like everyone is going to know that I'm on my period. It's so embarrassing. Like what a bad thing. Like, oh my goodness. I remember thinking that, am I the only one who had these thoughts in elementary school or even in high school, like needing to go to the washroom and needing to go to my locker first and looking down the hallway to make sure that no one else was in the hallway to see me taking a tampon out of my backpack, putting it in my pocket and go to the washroom. You know, no one really wants these things to be out in the open. We are sort of taught to hide them. Like we'll whisper to a friend, like, Hey, do you have a tampon or whisper to a coworker or something like that? And we sort of hope that no one hears. We're taught to keep these things in private. And I think that it doesn't really need to be that way. And if we stop hiding, you know, feminine things like having a period, then um, maybe women will speak out more about other feminine conditions like vaginismus, endometriosis, and things like that. I believe that there is a systemic assignment of various feminine health issues being deemed as normal. Your period is so debilitating that you throw up and you can't go to work. 
take some Midol, grab a hot pack. It's normal. You're a woman. You have a period. Your back hurts while you're pregnant. You're growing a baby. You're carrying around a bunch of extra load um, in front of you. It's no wonder that your back hurts. It's normal. You pee a little bit when you laugh or when you sneeze. That's pretty normal. Wear a panty liner. You know, urinary incontinence is just a normal part of being a woman. Your vagina hurts so much when you have sex that it's really painful and you cry. Do more foreplay, use more lube, it's normal. But what I really want to address is that we cannot keep discounting feminine ailments and feminine experiences as normal because normality in of itself is a completely social construct and the only person who should be deciding what is normal and what isn't normal and the only person who should decide your normality and my normality is the actual person themselves who is who is experiencing the issue when we discount um, experiences of vaginismus as quote-unquote normal we tell women that pain suffering and sexual dissatisfaction is just part of being a woman it's just part of the feminine condition it's just part of you know being a woman and experiencing life as a woman and i just find that so sad and just really not okay what we should be doing is we should be informing our children um, during such sexual education and sex ed and all of those things that sex does not need to be painful. Sex can be actually very pleasurable and there shouldn't be any shame or guilt associated with sex being pleasurable and with sex being a just a normal thing that happens in a very, very human like humanistic experience we should really be informing children of this from a very very young age and we should also stop telling kids about how painful sex is going to be we should listen to women's experiences and take their pain seriously and try to alleviate that pain in any way that we can a course I took at University of Toronto with Dr. Michael Atkinson, who is an ethnographic researcher. He's a very, very um, peculiar and interesting fellow. He focuses a lot on the human condition, illness, suffering, and disease. In one of the courses there, I talked about, or I learned about, I should say, um, the intersubjectivity of pain and how, you know, when we go to the doctor or we go to the emergency room, they ask us to rate our pain on a scale of one to ten and that sort of pain scale is sort of irrelevant because our perception of pain is so subjective with regards to the pain that we have experienced so when we hear a woman say that her pain out of ten during intercourse is an eight like it is excruciatingly painful we need to be mindful that we have our own internal biases with regards to what an 8 out of 10 on the pain scale is based on the pain that we have been subjected to. So I think we really need to pay attention to the person and pay attention to their lived experience and acknowledge our internal biases when using pain scales as a reference for measuring um, the pain that someone is experiencing. We should have more conversations with our friends about vaginismus and make sure that people know that vaginismus is a thing 
and that there's treatment for it. A lot of women don't know that vaginismus is a thing. And because they don't know that it's a thing, they just accept that pain is that pain is imperative or is associated with sex and they just live with it and they just know that yep I'm gonna have sex and it's gonna be painful so I think that we should probably start having more conversations with our friends more conversations with healthcare professionals more conversations in um, different healthcare and primary health based university programs that vaginismus is a real condition it's not just you know made up by people who have had painful sex it's a thing and it is a condition that affects a lot of women and it can be treated we should be teaching women to be more assertive and advocate for their own health so the next time that someone tells them that painful sex is normal they can tell them to look into the body of research that outlines that painful sex is indicative of a more serious health condition if women are more are taught to be more assertive in saying I'm having painful sex this is not normal and I want to know how you can help me treat this condition then women might um, deviate from that sort of how do I put this women can deviate from that norm that painful sex is normal and painful sex is just part of being a woman if we can also teach women to be more assertive then we might be able to create a better conversation about vaginismus and we can have more people reaching out to key stakeholders who are in charge of our healthcare system and advocate that we need better resources better funding and better research put into identifying and sort of um, outlining the, the issue of vaginismus. It really, really blows my mind the amount of research or I should say the lack of research regards to vaginismus knowing that 2 to 4% of people with a vagina experience it. And as an estrogen empire, I want you to tell your friends that you've learned about vaginismus today on the podcast. I want you to share this podcast with others so that other people can be informed and they can learn that sex doesn't need to be a painful thing and that painful sex is not just part of the feminine human experience. I want you to share something on your Instagram stories about vaginismus, whether it be a schematic that you find on Pinterest, whether it be a snippet of the podcast, so that we can hopefully increase awareness and conversation about the condition. After all, like I said about the statistics, if if you know 100 women, it is likely that two to four of them will have vaginismus and they may not even know it. And they may just be accepting the fact that pain and sex are associated. If you have this condition and a lot of the things that I talked about in this podcast sort of ring true for you or you're thinking like, hey, I have painful sex or hey, I have you know difficulty inserting a tampon, I want to make sure that you do not use this podcast as diagnostic material for such condition and you should consult a family physician or a gynecologist for further assessment. This podcast is not a diagnostic criteria for vaginismus. I am not sitting here telling you that you have vaginismus 
or you have vaginal stenosis, that requires um, both physical and psychological assessment of a healthcare professional. So I would strongly encourage you to reach out right now when the podcast is over, make a phone call to your family physician, go to a walk-in or... Um, look for a referral to a gynecologist to sort of see if you have vaginismus or vaginal stenosis or um, painful sex or anything like that. It's not diagnostic material. But then again, um, if this podcast has sparked a lot of interest in you and a lot of the things that I have talked about have really rang true for you, I want you to be assertive and I want you to advocate for your own health. I want you to take your health into your own hands and go and see a doctor and let them know that you think you may have vaginismus and you really want to know about your options for treatment. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode of Bee's Estrogen Empire. I'm so excited for what we can accomplish as an empire advocating for women's health and learning about different things about women's health and just sort of increasing awareness. So I will see you guys in the next episode. As always, episodes go up on Mondays. So I look forward to chatting with you all on Monday. Thank you for joining Bee's Estrogen Empire. It is a beautiful life.